Speaking of my grandfathers, based on my focus, and my, my title isn't quite as, uh, as uh, indicative as, as you may think. You'll see why as we go on. But the Lord's Prayer is typically thought of as the, you know, our Father who art in heaven. There's another one in John 17 that is really Jesus' prayer to the Father. Right there at the end of his farewell discourse to the disciples that we've been in over the last several uh, weeks. Which I, I think probably better represents the prayer of Jesus as his time on earth drew to its end, even than the prayer that he taught us to pray in the Gospels, which is such a great prayer uh, for us uh, to, to God. But based on my focus this morning, I was thinking of the many prayers I've had prayed for me. Because you'll see that Jesus' prayer in John 17 is actually includes us. I don't remember some of them, but I know they happened. There was a prayer of dedication offered by my grandpa Heidner, my maternal grandfather, in the spring of 1982 when my parents had me before the congregation at Judson Baptist Church. I remember a prayer when I was, oh, probably 17, maybe 18, that my dad prayed for me in his office, audibly, as I prepared to go and preach my first sermon one Sunday night. Boy, I was nervous prayed for me, that God would speak through me, and that, uh, that I wouldn't be so nervous. <laughs> there is a prayer of blessing prayed by Father Tim Habercorn, who was Catholic, or is a Catholic priest now in Topeka, but uh, was at Christ the King, where Dana and her family went when she was growing up, and he was one who co-officiated our wedding. And he prayed that God would bless our marriage. I can remember prayers offered for me by my kids. It always is significant to me when the prayer at the beginning of the service includes me specifically. And it reminds me it is a holy responsibility to stand before God's people and attempt to deliver a word from God that day. Maybe the most significant prayer ever offered for any one of us, though, came about without our even requesting or knowing about it. The Lord Jesus prayed for us before we were even born, <laughs> well before the church was ever formed. I'm talking about the prayer offered in John 17. Jesus' final message to the disciples, right before this prayer commences, is this. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you, the 11 remaining disciples there in that room, will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Maybe a little bit more familiar language. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. If there were ever some guys who felt like they needed to be prayed for, it was probably those 11 when Jesus promised them that 
this world would include trouble. But these words of Jesus, this promise of tribulation and trouble and struggle and difficulty, are followed by a chapter-long prayer that encompasses the prayer, the heart of Jesus. For the disciples gathered with him as the cross loomed, as well as the future church, and that includes us. Some have suggested that maybe chapter 17 represent the gist of, of that excruciating prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, interesting fact that probably isn't going to change your life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke include this kind of very uh, descriptive moment as Jesus goes to the garden and, and takes with him Peter, James, and John, and he says to them, you stay here and pray while I go a little further, and, and they can't stay awake. Remember that kind of exchange where Jesus comes back, you're, you're sleeping, I need you to pray. John doesn't include that. In fact, you'll see as we move to chapter 18 that it, it kind of moves in, in a strange lack of a transition from this upper room where they gathered, where Jesus had washed their feet, where he had told them he was going to prepare a place for them, where he told them that they needed to love one another as he had loved them, where he promised them trouble would come, where he prayed for them. It kind of just transitions directly into the betrayal. So that prayer in the garden doesn't really exist in, in John 17. Some have suggested that, or in John, I'm sorry, some have suggested that John 17 may encompass some of what Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. It describes for us what weighed on the heart of Jesus as his time to return to the Father drew near. You know, prayer has a way of displaying what our priorities are, doesn't it? Both whether prayer is a priority, and then also, what are we praying for? Who are we praying for? How are we praying that God would move and act? This was certainly true of Jesus. Hear these words. See these words from John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, meaning, behold, you will have trouble, but I have, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. So a clear transition from Jesus' message to the disciples to Jesus the Son's message in prayer to the Father. And he said to them, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jumping down to verse 6, I have manifested or made known your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, 
because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. <laughs> I wrote, wow, there's a lot to unpack here. Hmm? I need to confess from the outset that I'm not really even going to try to unpack all that uh, is included in the richness of Jesus' prayer. The exercise of walking through John's gospel. I went back and looked. January 23rd was the very first sermon uh, that I preached from John this year. We took a little hiatus during uh, Palm Sunday and Easter, but other than that, we've trudged our way through. And one of the things that it's revealed to me is the richness and depth that John's gospel includes, likely in ways that I really hadn't appreciated before. There have been great men and women of God who've dedicated the entirety of their lives of both study and devotion to this gospel, to John's gospel. There's plenty to explore. Maybe a takeaway as we head toward the conclusion. Believe it or not, we're getting, we're getting close. huh? We're going to spend one more week in John 17 next week, and, and then we're going to... Uh, I haven't quite figured it out. There's two lengthy passages in John that include the crucifixion. We'll, we'll have to kind of see how we handle that. And then the resurrection and John 21, and we're done. Which means it's almost Advent, which is unbelievable. But here we, here we are. But maybe, maybe a takeaway for us in terms of continued study on your own. If you ever just wanted to, you have a week and you think, well, what am I going to read this week? John 17 wouldn't be a bad passage to just five or six verses a day. Just sit with those verses. Lord, what, what, is, what is this saying? Because I'm sure not in my next five or ten minutes going to be able to, uh, to plumb all, of, all that it would include. But it does show, I think, the heart of Jesus. The opening verses in this prayer include a, uh, something of a dedication or a rededication of Jesus' will to that of the Father. Father, the hour has come, Jesus begins. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now these words do sound like the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't they? Not my will, but yours be done. John's Gospel has made clear, though, that glorification is not self-promotion. It is not a claim in the eyes of the world. Glorification of Jesus comes as a result of glorification of the Father. The two are always in John intertwined. As the Father has sent the Son to redeem the world, obedience to that task includes actually the opposite of the, what the world would envision as glorification. But Jesus remains fully and steadfastly committed. From there, the passage moves to a commissioning of sorts of those who follow Jesus. The spreading of the message of Jesus' obedience and the resulting glory of the Father that that would bring rests with those given to Jesus by God. These 11 have to be able to spread the message that they've received. Based on the backdrop of the first 16 chapters, it's, 
it's, it's interesting to note kind of the endorsement that Jesus gives the Father in regard to the disciples, isn't it? It's almost surprising that Jesus claims to God that the disciples have been faithful to the witness they've received because John's gospel, there's always this sense that they, they don't really quite get it, which is true of all of the gospels, which is certainly true of at least this disciple of Jesus in terms of, oh yeah, I, I understand what you're doing here. Let me, let me get in line in terms of, of, uh, of supporting this, this mission. But, but there's something encouraging about that too, isn't, it? isn't there? That these guys, with their, with their uh, foibles and fails and, and missteps throughout, in the eyes and opinion of Jesus and, and in, his, in, in his recounting to the Father of their faithfulness, he says, they believed, they knew me, they believed you had, that you had sent me. And because of that, he celebrates who they are as his disciples. Jesus' prayer reminds us that Jesus is not looking for perfection in his followers. Instead, it rests on Jesus' knowledge that the disciples, both then and now, are guided by the Father who has also guided him. I was reading a pastor's thoughts on this passage. This very passage that, uh, that mentions uh, the guidance of the Lord about the existence of the disciples in the world. I want to take issue with my pastor friend. He referenced, in relation to this passage, he referenced a story published in Sports Illustrated. Sorry for the grainy video. I was taking screenshots off of YouTube. It didn't. And it's an old it's an old video. I think it's back from 2002. Jake Turner is the young high schooler circled in the video. Lined up at running back, number 14 in his quarter, is his quarterback. Jake went to high school at Northwest High in McDermott, Ohio. There's a blue team. The white team is Waverly High. Now Jake Porter... It says Turner there. It says Porter here. I think it's, yeah, it's Jake. I'm not sure. I messed up my name somehow. Jake was a young man who was something of an honorary member of the Northwest High team. It was his senior year. This was his final game. He loved football. He loved being part of the Northwest High team, but some mental deficiencies that he was born with led him to never having actually played during his four years of high school. His coach wanted to do something for him, though, that he would never forget. So he contacted his friend. The Northwest High coach contacted his friend who coached the Waverly team, and, and he said to him, if we have the ball last, we're going to put Jake in just to take the snap and, and just kneel down. Clock keeps running and time expired. But we would get Jake a snap, get him on the field, be a great day for him. The Waverly High coach obviously agreed. Waverly High, Jake's opponent that night, was the far superior team. They led 42 to nothing at this point. The game was not in doubt. As the coaches discussed, Jake took the field and the home stands erupted in cheers. They all knew Jake. Yay, you know Jake's coming out. 
except even over the sound of the applause, the Waverly coach on the other sideline begins to yell, remember boys, Jake's scoring a touchdown tonight. Jake's scoring a touchdown tonight. This is the opposing coach was saying this. At first confused, Jake's teammates caught on when Jake came to the huddle. So they told him, hey, don't kneel down. We're going to hand it to you, and, and, and you run. Okay, so the left picture is just after the snap, and you can, you can kind of see the players in both blue and white just kind of standing there, not really trying to, to tackle the young guy in red who by this point had kind of figured out what he was supposed to do. And so he takes off with the ball there in his left hand, and, and he, he runs all the way down. And in the video, you see some of the players on both teams just kind of running along with him. Keep going, guiding him all the way <coughs> to the end zone. And as he crosses the plane of the end zone, the referee standing there raises his arms. Touchdown, Northwest High. Touchdown for young Jake. His family members... Friends in the stand cried tears of appreciative joy. It's a beautiful story. I love that story. Now, <laughs> my pastor friend thought, and I want to be careful here, he, he, he thought that, that this story was a good illustration of Jesus' prayer for the church in terms of being guided in John 17. Glorification for Jake. He was guided, literally guided to glorification that ended in the end zone. But glorification in John's gospel and God guiding the church of the Lord Jesus Christ down the path of glorification. Rarely. Hmm. John's gospel, I think you could say never. It never results in the end zone that the world would recognize. We have a bit of a different perspective on things sometimes, don't we? In just a moment, we'll move to a time of celebrating communion. You ever think about the, the verb celebrating communion. It's a joyful commemoration of a very intentional remembrance of what? Death. Christ's prayer for his church included praying for her glorification. But as we'll see in a few weeks in John's gospel, the glory of God looks a lot more like thorns than touchdowns. And a lot more like a cross than an end zone. Yet even in this realization that in this world we will have trouble, we take heart, remembering that our Lord has overcome this world. Oh God, we pray that as we move forward in these moments, as we remember again your sacrifice for us, 
that we would be encouraged. But that we would remember that glorification requires death. Maybe there are elements of our own lives where it feels like death is near, be it literal, physical, or maybe more likely the fallen nature of the world. God, may we take a different perspective again, even in those difficulties, embracing them, realizing that they will ultimately lead to our glorification. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.